0: Hello and welcome to Progressive News Network for Sunday, August 30, 2020. I'm your host, Brooke Hines, And tonight we have Janine Mala with the Justice Report doing a fact-checking on the Republican Convention. Um, I should have given her more time for that. Uh, so she's going to be around at 8.30 to do that. And you've got me until then. I recorded some pieces to share with you, and we will be getting to that in just a second. But um, first, I thought I would uh, share a couple of facts with you. And uh, these come by way of the Harper's Index. Harper's, listen, they've really gone downhill since forever ago, but uh, I still like the Harper's index because it offers up some interesting statistics every now and then. So here's a couple estimated number of Americans who have lost a friend or family member since 2014, because healthcare was too costly. 34 million people, 34 million people. Have lost a friend or family member since 2014 because healthcare was too expensive. Factor by which this is more likely to be true of a Democrat than a Republican. Three, Democrats are three times more likely to know someone who uh, who's died, who we've lost, um, because healthcare was too costly. Uh, there's a, a couple of other uh, really interesting statistics in this. In this index uh, You go down a couple lines and it says Estimated percentage of Americans Who have an autoimmune disease 15 15% of Americans are estimated to have An autoimmune disease Estimated percentage Of Americans who can name An autoimmune disease Is also 15% ah! Oh my god That's That's uh, that doesn't surprise me, but that could be changing real soon. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, COVID long haulers here in a second. And uh, what it looks like what's happening in the COVID long haul. It looks like that is pretty much autoimmune disorder, but we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, and uh And then we'll get into some of the week's uh, political news. All right. I think first and foremost in everybody's minds are the uh, protests and uh, situation in Wisconsin and in Portland, uh, Oregon. For you know we we had another we had another shooting, and in response to that shooting, there's been more protests. During these protests, we have seen uh, some property damage. And in response to the property damage, we have a whole lot of silly stuff, whole lot of silly people saying silly things. We also have some serious people saying some silly things. Um, uh, something that I'm hearing over and over again without any kind of reflection is um, that the left is embracing a... A a grad school form of anarchism that uh, includes property damage and looting and violence and this, that, and the other. And this um, bunch of silliness comes in response to um, Natalie Escobar's piece uh, for NPR that is called One Author's Argument in Defense of Looting. And so, um, you know, we've had all of this unrest. And as I've reported earlier, you know, during this unrest, we've had evidence that there are right-wing uh, militia people who were breaking windows. That was the case at the Auto zone uh, at the very first with the George Floyd uh, protest. Then we saw last week, There was it two weeks ago. Last week or two weeks ago, there was uh, the former, the retired special force, special forces guy, um, Fernbach, who made a bunch of pipe bombs and thought it was a good idea to throw those into crowds of people, at. In Portland at a protest he also bragged on LinkedIn that he had infiltrated the left or whatever or Antifa or whatever it is um he had infiltrated them uh but then he he threw pipe bombs at them which I think would maybe blow your cover and it did blow his cover as a matter of fact we've also seen over and over again that the police are instigating violence okay so you know I just want to frame this though I just want to put this in a context that what's going on at these protests is um, not at all clear where the property damage, where the vandalism and where the uh, well we do know where the violence is coming from the violence the bodily, va- Violence is coming from the police But we don't have such a clear picture On what's going on with property damage With people setting fires And with looting We just don't know Once a window is broken On a store Or a shop Then uh, what happens in mob mentality is, you know, people go through and start taking things. They go through the open window or the open door and they start taking things. That is part of the mob mentality, but we don't know who is actually instigating this in the first place. And we have uh, an abundance of evidence that there's right wingers, that there's police and that there are um Retired special forces working in conjunction with these militias, these right wing militias who are instigating violence. So that's what we know. And we don't have one instance where you've got a left winger who's raising their hand and going, oh, yeah, it was me. I was the one who did that. And um, I take responsibility or, you know, I'm claiming this on behalf of whatever, you know, that's just not happened at all. Now, in the midst of this, NPR does this story, One Author's Argument in Defense of Looting. And um, this is, like I said, this was Natalie Escobar who posted the piece. Um, She's she's talking to Vicki Osterweil, who wrote a book called In Defense of Looting. And, you know, I was in college, and I did a lot of grad school, and I did a lot of political science, and I did a lot of sociology, and I was actually uh, confronted in undergrad with the notion that uh, communities in the 60s and 70s that rioted actually got more reforms than ones that didn't in earlier confrontations, say in the 50s and 60s. Uh, I didn't believe it at the time. I had to, my professor had to prove it to me. And such was the case. They actually, he was right. Uh, there were reforms that were attributable to, you know, the things that went on in um, in uh, other places that had... Um, had seen rioting And that is the place that Vicki Osterweil Is taking off from In her book called In Defense of Looting Now this book came out on Tuesday uh, She finished it back in April uh, When she wrote Rather presciently uh, Quote A new energy of resistance is building Across the country um, I don't know how Prescient that was at that point I mean I think if you're pretty much a warm body in the world uh at that point it was it was pretty obvious that resistance um, has a lot of different definitions and is claimed by a lot of different people uh and that uh everyone has a different notion of what resistance actually is so MPR actually puts this person uh, uh front and center and some people i have seen Uh, And social media have been claiming that the reason uh, outlets such as NPR put someone like this front and center is to, uh, is to, is kind of for bait, you know, they're, they're hung out there as bait so that gets smeared with everything this person represents and the left is then taken to uh, equal all things having to do with looting and violence and violent protests and so on and so forth. Uh, in other words, uh, you know, people are saying that this was, um, that this is a, you know, a form of fuckery by, by uh, um large media, specifically NPR. Now, there's nothing really in this interview with um, Osterweil that, that I find earth-shattering. She says uh she does some, some basic uh, moves that are, you know, let's define rioting, let's define looting. She says that um, often looting is more common among movements that are coming from below. Uh, so um, it tends to be an attack on a business, a commercial space, maybe a government building. Uh, and she says that uh, that uh, that this kind of looting is you know with the with the working classes or with the lower classes or whatever, and I kind of made a note in the margin on this on this interview to say, you know there are plenty of instances where in uh where empires and and empire building uh the whole point of empire building is to loot to loot countries so i think that there was kind of an a missed opportunity there to say that um when when poor people do it on a small scale it's called looting and violence and when uh um entire countries do it or empires do it, it's called, you know, winning a war or imperialism or colonialism or whatever you want to call it. Uh, So I thought that was kind of a missed opportunity. She she says that the word looting is a highly radicalized word from its very inception in the English language. It is taken from Hindu um, uh, Lut, L-U-T, which means goods or spoils, and it appears in an English colonial officer's handbook on Indian vocabulary in the 19th century. So I would suggest with the East India Company and this coming to the English language via India and Hindu that the word loot is looted itself. <laughs> well, what do you think of that? Um She goes on, there's there's just a lot of red meat in this interview to give people like, um, you know, like uh, right-wingers who... Have set themselves up in the Democratic Party There's a lot of red meat in here for them To distance themselves from the Black Lives Matter movement And the uprisings that are happening uh, across the country Now, don't forget that um, the uh, protest for Breonna, for Brianna Taylor They have not stopped That has been going on in Kentucky since the... Since the very beginning And it's been every single night since then But what what our attention gets put on Are the uh, uprisings that are happening in Wisconsin Because of the Jacob Blake shooting And then again what's happening in Portland Now um, Obviously Obviously it's not Optimal that there Is violence in the streets Uh, The violence Like I mentioned before I think is largely perpetrated By the um, police What you have are People doing demonstrations Who are marching They've got Uh, signs and this and that and they want to march and they want to get their political point across and then they're met with this resistance with this violence from the police and then that creates a conflagration that creates chaos that provides cover for people who are going to break the law and do things that are not optimal for the movement. Now, we saw this in Occupy. Remember the black block? Remember how, you know, you would just be going about your business, you'd be having your march or whatever, and there'd be these guys in black, and they'd come out of nowhere. You weren't familiar with them in your particular Occupy, but they'd show up for the marches so that they could break windows and cause all kinds of havoc. You know, during during the uh, public events But nobody knew where the, the hell they were They just came out of nowhere It happened in Orlando It happened in Austin It happened in Los Angeles It happened in Seattle It happened all over the place These guys would show up out of nowhere And cause trouble That could be what's going on In, uh, in some of these cases Other things that could be happening Is, uh, you know, small businesses That are strapped from not having any customers and from the covid shutdown they could be you know burning their own businesses to collect insurance we don't know it could be anything we don't know unless you catch somebody red-handed or unless you you know what's going on and can prove it all you the best you can say is that this property damage is associated with the violence that erupted out of a protest that had been peaceful until the police showed up in the best of all possible worlds. That's the way people would talk about it, but that's not how people talk about it. Yeah. You know? They take the shortcut and they say, well, there's protests and there's property damage. And so then therefore the protests are responsible for the property damage. and I don't believe that's the case, you know? Uh, Yet, if I'm shown evidence that that is the case, then I will be happy to adjust the way that I look at this, but Until then, I don't think we have enough evidence in front of us to say that. The best that you can say is that the two are associated. And in terms of my speculation, in terms of my experience in these things, I would say that you've got bad actors taking uh, uh, advantage of chaotic situations at best. And like I said... In the instances where we know, where we've been able to identify the people who have been uh, breaking windows and doing property damage and so on and so forth, we've identified them as right-wingers. I mean, uh, there's a lot going on here. And we'll continue to unpack this as we go along. Um, Okay, so I've... You might know, if you're a listener to the show, you might know that the last couple of episodes that we've done have had a little bit of technical difficulty, and some of that has had to do with the interface with Blog Talk Radio, and uh, I think we've got some of that ironed out, but uh, just to make sure that those technical difficulties do not interrupt our shows, I'm endeavoring to record as much as possible uh, pre-recorded so that it's just ready to go and nothing can get in our way, right? Um, I think that's smart. And so I've got a couple of pieces that I'm going to share with you. These are things that I've recorded earlier um, this week and today. Uh, And the first thing I want to share with you, and this is kind of the the frame that I want to put all of, this week's kind of news into And by the way we'll let Janine do the Republican National Convention That's, I had no Interest in turning that on My television I walked past it long enough On Thursday to see The massive You know violation of the Hatch Act And hear Lee Greenwood And that was enough I didn't need to see anymore It's
1: gross Blah.
0: Um so I want to share this piece with you that is on personal morality and public action and uh yeah here we go Okay, you guys, this week on the Weekly Beat, I want to share with you uh, an essay called Coronavirus Rioting and the Privatization of Morality, because I think this is super important to what is going on right now. Uh, If you haven't noticed, this weekend there was a conversation that kind of ignited around uh, vandalism and property damage around the protests, especially in Portland, and there's a lot of policing of speech and policing of behavior uh, without a lot of, in my opinion, without a lot of sense about who's causing the violence and what it's about. So, you know, before I get into this, let me just state the obvious, which is when you see a, 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 a building that has been vandalized or uh, windows smashed or this, that, and the other. We've had plenty of uh, evidence that you have – Retired special forces people throwing pipe bombs into the crowds. Uh, such was the case with the Fuerbach or the Fernbach fellow a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Ex special forces, runs his own security firm, and you know thought it'd be cute to make a bunch of pipe bombs and just toss them around willy-nilly into the crowds at, at uh, protest in Portland. <clears throat> You also had uh, during the very first protests uh, after the George Floyd killing, you, we had video of what most people thought was a cop breaking windows at an auto zone, and it turned out uh, that he was from out of state and uh, was aligned with right-wing militias. And everybody can see the violence that is being uh, perpetrated by the police in all of these cities. So, you know, let's just start there. Let's just start, start with what we know about the violence. And as it stands, no one from the left has come forth to say, oh, hey, yeah, we set those buildings on fire, or we did this, or we did that, or the other. That stuff is happening under the cover of chaos. And the chaos is happening because of political things that are happening. All right, so what's going on with this property damage, we're getting all of this personal morality pushback on that without any kind of proof that that's the left doing it or that it's uh, uh, people who are engaged in those pro, pro- Uh, protest at all. And rather, it seems like every bit of evidence that we have about who's doing violence and who's doing property damage, those people are associated with the other side. So let's just keep that in mind, first of all. But then, let's step back a little bit and ask ourselves, what is the difference between private morality and public politics? And what happens when we get those two things mixed up? mixed up or shall we say confused, because in this case, I think that we have a lot of confusion on this. Um, In this essay, I think the writer makes a really good point, and he says, quote, the moral space is the space where we can have catharsis about judging another individual. The political is the space where we must confront our own impotence and weakness in the face of the power of the rich and well-connected. So you see that personal morality and political work, they're two separate projects, and they relate very much to two separate uh, activities, and they call for two separate kinds of responses. Now, Democrats, I think, are making a big mistake by not taking uh, the candidacy of Donald Trump seriously this cycle, and they definitely didn't take it seriously last cycle. And the reason why they don't is because to them, Donald Trump represents this, uh, he's a symbol of uh, bad personal morality, bad aesthetics. He's just, you know, beyond the pale. He is an example of uh, what is absolutely unthinkable when it comes to your average liberal voting. And let's be really clear about what we mean when we talk about liberals. So liberals, progressives, and the left, different animals, all three different animals. And uh, you you might characterize liberals as being part of a herd that is a little more low information than progressives, and you might consider progressives to be a little bit of liberal and a little bit of left, and yet they are still uh, lower information than people on the left, and the people on the left who consider themselves leftists are (coughs) – The kind of folks who might be—they might have too much information, right? They might be the people who are like, "Well, have you read Marx or have you read Lenin or da 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 da," you know, and they expect a lot of theory to be brought in to bear onto uh, uh, certain things that happen in the real world. Now. I make this distinction because I think it's really important to being able to understand what is going on in our public discourse, and that there are three different, at least three different groups with different backgrounds and different strengths, and they focus on different pieces of the puzzle, okay? Liberals, I would argue, are much more likely to point to individual, personal morality, and expect that to carry the day in the political sphere. And liberals are let down time and time and time again because you just can't make that expectation, you know? Uh, Your personal morality is never going to be reflected back at you in the political sphere. Uh, It's Maybe the couple of times that it is reflected back at you, it's in these small and insignificant ways. Like, like uh, yeah, it's really good when, uh, when the state does something that is commendable. Uh, unfortunately, the state doing things that are commendable are fewer and far between these days. So we can't keep stamping our feet and saying, hey, how come the political sphere, how come the state isn't acting according to my own personal idea of morality? You know, because the state, like a corporation, doesn't have a personal morality. It's not a person. There's no personhood there. It is an entity that acts and behaves in ways that social entities can behave. So way back in May, uh, here's, here's what this writer was, was responding to. He says, a short while ago, we were making political demands on our states. Um, some of us wanted our governments to do more to stop the spread of the virus and to save lives. And some of us wanted our governments to provide more aid, more economic stimulus. But over the last few weeks, and he's again talking at the end of May, we stopped making political demands and instead we started looking at each other as governments began reopening their economies they tried to make it our responsibility to stop the virus you are supposed to social distance you are supposed to wear a mask and in most cases none of this is required by law and those jurisdictions where the advice has been incorporated into law, it's only nominally enforced. And, you know, I would ask you, how how exactly are you going to enforce this? Are you going to uh, arrest people that you see, what, driving in their cars without a mask? You know, that's, that's, that's not good public policy. But let's dig in a little bit further and see why. Um, So these actions are not incorporated into law, they're nominally enforced, but you're supposed to feel a moral obligation to do these things, and if you don't do them, then people will shame you, they will yell at you, and they'll try to use social media, they'll try to use their social capital to uh, uh, get sanctions against you, Like maybe getting you fired from your job, which is something that we've seen uh, you know, repeatedly on social media, not just with coronavirus or COVID-19, but with a, a lot of different types of issues. Uh, the guidelines aren't enforced by the state. They're enforced by the people around you. The state doesn't take responsibility for this informal, interpersonal, interpersonal coercion, but it tacitly encourages it. When we're fighting each other about, and I think this is really, really important, this is the key, when we're fighting each other about whether or not we should wear masks, we aren't making demands on the state. If we're too busy playing police officer with each other, we won't have the bandwidth to hold our government to account. Well, let's just stop right there, because it's not just a sense of not having the energy to do it, once you've placed the uh, uh, situation in the realm of personal morality rather than public policy, then you've negated the ability of the state to go and do anything corrective about it. If it's entirely, if fighting this virus is entirely within the realm of personal morality and personal responsibility, then there really isn't, it doesn't make any sense for the state or the government or for anyone else to intervene. And that's a big problem. It's a super big problem with, with coronavirus. Uh We tend to hold politics and morality to be two distinct things. If something is political, it's the state's responsibility. If it is moral, it becomes your job to take care of it. The political is associated with the public sphere, and the moral is associated with the private. It wasn't always like this. Plato and Aristotle believed that cities were ultimately responsible for ensuring the citizens become virtuous people and lead virtuous lives. For the Greeks it was impossible to maintain a good city if the citizens weren't good and therefore the morality of the citizens was a public matter. Politics and morality were intertwined in a virtuous circle. Now the people who didn't spend a hell of a lot of time reading the Greeks in high school and college. Some of the stuff about uh, virtuous people in the city might not make a lot of sense, but for those who have, um, that's going to ring a bell because whether or not a person is virtuous or a city is virtuous uh, or a war is virtuous, these things are central to, uh, to, to the Greeks, and they got passed down to us through the way that we formed our governments and the way that we have formed our political philosophy. Now, modern philosophers, modern people, uh, break this relationship apart. For, um, for Montesquieu, it was unrealistic to expect citizens to ever possess virtue at scale. Virtue was just too hard to get. Montesquieu thought people were morally petty and useless and political institutions should be designed with that in mind. He made an argument for separation of powers on this, <clears throat> on this basis. Um, ambition checks ambition. And even if all the parts of the state are corrupt, none can dominate others. Once it became possible to imagine a political system operating apart from morality, theorists began designing moral systems that stood apart from politics. And this is where it starts to really reflect what's going on in the United States and in America because the author is, is uh, showing us that this discussion starts from uh, Adam Smith who famously wrote two very different books, The Wealth of Nations and The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And for Smith, markets only work properly when the people who participate in them are virtuous. But Smith doesn't go into detail about how the population is meant to acquire that virtue necessary for markets to work. Instead, Smith explains what he thinks virtue needs to do It needs to enable us to get our moral sentiments to align with those of an imagined, impartial, third-party observer. But he never tells us how we're meant to develop the virtues necessary to do this. Okay, I know this is a lot. This just seems like a lot. Just, like, hang with me for a second. Um, Smith describes the state in a relatively minimalist way. It's clear that the state isn't going to do the work of giving us the virtues necessary to generate the sentiments we require to sustainably participate in markets. Okay, so, you know, for Smith, this is all boiling down to whether or not we are participating in the markets in a reasonable way. Um, Smith doesn't seem to see this as a problem. It's not an oversight. Smith simply thinks that morality can be secured in the private sphere. There you go. If it's secured in the private sphere, you don't have to worry about it. Instead of having the state nurture virtue in its citizens, the citizens will develop their moral capacities in private through personal journeys and participation in churches and other civil organizations. Smith is able to take this position because Smith is a liberal And as a liberal, he thinks that individuals have agency, that they can construct themselves, and they can therefore be held responsible for the kinds of people they become. This is not the way ancient people like the Greeks thought about politics and morality, and it's certainly not the way that Marxists think about it. Marxists think our moral beliefs stem from our position in the class structure, and therefore from our position in the economic system. And this makes sense to me. For Marxists, embracing capitalism means embracing the kinds of morality that capitalist roles generate. The Greeks, on the other hand, focused on how different kinds of cities create different kinds of people. and that's that's actually kind of aligns with what Marx is after here. The Marxists focus on how different systems of political economy, Perform the same role for both the Marxists and the Greeks. Our moral beliefs do not form their own accord in a detached, insulated private sphere. What liberals call private is really just the cultural consequences of what is pop public, not popular, public. Liberal states draw a line between public and private, between politics and morality, um, because they can then depoliticize issues by moralizing them, by pushing them into the private sphere. It's privatization. It's neoliberalism, basically. uh, This isn't something that the state does anymore. This isn't something that there's any responsibility that can be held on a social level. This is all on you guys. That's neoliberalism. In this way, the liberal state avoids collective responsibility for conditions and instead pushes its citizens to take personal responsibility for them. Uh, The author says, I like to call this responsabilization. The liberal state responsabilizes us to prevent us from holding it responsible. I mean, dig that for a second. You know, this is neoliberalism. If we are... If the state is pointing to each individual person and saying, hey, you're responsible for COVID and you're responsible for wealth inequality and you're responsible for mass evictions, then that preempts people from turning that back onto the state and saying, "No, this state is responsible for mass evictions. The state is responsible for their incredibly irresponsible reaction response to uh, coronavirus. And the state has created all of the uh, uh, um, systems in which wealth inequality is created, and then reinforced. Now goes on. This is what's going on with coronavirus. We aren't talking anymore about the big political questions. We aren't talking about what the state should be doing. We're talking about what each of us should do individually. In the last couple of weeks, the UK became obsessed with an obscure minister by the name of Dominic Cummings. Cummings violated the guidelines of coronavirus, and this kicked off a storm of demands that Cummings be forced to resign. Criticizing Cummings seemed like a form of political action, but it's not. And since this person is uh, writing in the UK and he's using uh, this uh, obscure minister as a uh, uh, an example, let's turn this around for the United States and, you know, let's point to Donald Trump you know donald trump went to his has been doing appearances where he doesn't wear a mask uh, uh you know these these photo ops where he goes to uh, va's and so on and so forth and he doesn't wear a mask and on cue everyone in The uh, MSNBC, CNN world just loses their freaking minds because, oh, my God, Donald Trump isn't wearing a mask, and and what kind of message is that sending, and blah, 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 and it's all this personal responsibility and aesthetics, okay? This is nothing – this says nothing about, you know, whether or not people can make ends meet, whether we can pay our bills. All of these people have been laid off. We've had over 30 million people lose their jobs. And lose their health care and are about to getting ready to be evicted and lose their homes and yet all the, the quote unquote liberal media CNN MSNBC all they want to talk about are the aesthetics and the personal morality around whether or not people are wearing masks so when you criticize this obscure minister, like Cummings, or you criticize Trump, you know, on these uh, aesthetic and personal morality uh, issues. It might feel like you're doing political uh, critique, you know, because you're pointing to someone in the political sphere and you're critiquing them. But that's not what political critique is. Political critique is pointing to the state and saying, what can the state do to make Life better for people. you know it is it, it is intrinsically a sociological uh, kind of question. so when you when you do this this kind of personal moralizing vis-a-vis uh, like Donald Trump, what you're doing is instead directing your moral outrage at a particular person and in so doing generating further private morality discourses, all right? around the question of what individual citizens should be doing. In this way, the conversation now treats the state's behavior as a given. Instead of asking more from the state, the British are reduced to making demands on each other. Different British people feel different ways about Cummings, morally and aesthetically. Same in the United States with Trump. We have different ideas morally and aesthetically about Donald Trump. And the debate quickly devolves into which private sentiments are aesthetically compelling or revolting. The whole thing turns into a big culture war. Now, there's something we're we're, uh, familiar with, culture war. Now we have a culture war. Now we have people taking sides. Now we've completely let the state off the hook, and we've completely let every bit of the political moment pass. And you're putting it on the shoulders of people. That's what's going on here. There's no political stakes in it. It divides the people, preventing them from uniting to demand anything. In the United States, riots have recently taken on a similar flavor. Once violence erupted, Americans stopped arguing about what they want from the government to do differently, and instead we began having an argument about whether violence is morally acceptable and about whether violence or, or riots or protests or whatever it is, whether they're aesthetically appealing. From there the discourse devolved further into a discussion about whether various individual commentators moral and aesthetic feelings about violence are themselves morally and aesthetically acceptable or appealing. Now you see how this is like a, you know, a snake eating its tail, you know? It's kind of like when 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 uh, uh Joe Rogan uh, in the you know the softest way possible, say kind of, sort of, maybe endorsed Bernie, and everybody freaked the fuck out because they were like, oh, Joe Rogan likes MMA. He's a, he's a, not my kind of aesthetic person. Or Joe Rogan might have said something you know distasteful at one point or another, and I find that morally repugnant. You know, blah 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 blah. And so you have this culture war instead of actually doing. Political engagement people are great at that on on social media. they're just you know freaking uh, uh, experts at it. So, there's now a furious competition among people who make the discourse who make discourse for a living to have the right feelings about rioting. They think they are doing politics, but the possibility of the state taking any form of meaningful action in response to the protest recedes further each day. Every day that passes, the discussion moves further from a critique of the state's policies and institutions toward a superficial cultural discussion about whether we have the right feelings about the riots as individuals. We are now already more interested in our own reaction to the riots than we are in the state's reaction now do you see do you see how that's a problem? Yeah it's like. The best that we're able to do, you know the way that the way that we are being pushed into our corners, the best that we are able to do is is to hold the mirror up in front of ourselves or hold hold a, a mirror up to other people and say, "Hey, do you like this or not?" you know it's all aesthetics it's all on the person. It's all on the personal. It's none of it is on the political or the social level. When we fight amongst ourselves, we pose no threat to the state. You got that? When you're fighting amongst yourselves, you pose no threat to the state. Making an issue that could be political into a cultural question about morality and aesthetics enables the state to kick it into the long grass. The louder we fight with each other, the less the state has to hear us. By the time the state returns to the conversation, we are so exhausted by the fight that its offer of law and order becomes seductive. The state is able to buy our compliance by offering us the bare minimum of security against one another, not with one another. So this isn't solidarity. We're asking for defense from our neighbors from the other people. That's what's wrong with this discourse. The political becomes a means of rescuing us from the futility of the moral. And why is the moral futile? Because the Greeks and the Marxists are right. There will never be any moral progress without political and economic progress. If we are to change, the system must change first. We can only change it when we do politics, and the system is designed to stop us from doing politics and to push us again and again and again into the private, into the moral, into the cultural realm. The more angry and upset we are, the more vulnerable we are, the easier it is to turn us on each other and push us out of the political The moral is the space where we can have the catharsis of judging another individual. The political is the space where we must confront our own impotence and weakness in the face of power and in the face of the rich and well-connected. Given the choice, the psychologically vulnerable will always choose catharsis over the long, hard road to win power, and so the private will always be an effective means of protecting an increasingly decrepit public realm. Y'all, this is it. This is, this is the game, 100%. We are being pushed every single day Into culture war. We are given culture war as a substitute for political action. And many of us, and I think the ones that that those of us on the left are the most aggravated with, many of us, the liberals, some progressives, are willing to make that exchange. And when I get on social media and I see people that I have in the past very much respected and very much respected them because of their political views, and I see them, like, let's say, tweeting 100% on nothing but political, you know, moral, uh, 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 culture war nonsense, I feel demoralized. I feel like... What happened to them? Are they pod people too now? What's going on here? And I think we have to understand that, yeah, they are pod people because right now the uh, world that we live in is pushing everybody into their own culture war pod, and that's what's available. Now, it takes a lot of intestinal fortitude, you know, it takes a lot of inner strength to Make it through this and say, I'm not going to let you push that morality on me. I'm not going to let you uh, let the social and the political off the hook. I'm going to keep pushing this, and I'm going to demand that we keep making demands on the social and the political. That's my demand, you know. I refuse to point to my colleagues and my neighbors and my allies and say, you're the problem, you know. And look at it this way. If we're talking about coronavirus and you're pointing at other people and you're saying you're the problem because you're not social distancing or you're not wearing a mask properly or whatever it is, you're just one little baby step away from saying you're the problem because you're sick. And that's the kind of dystopia that we're headed for if we keep allowing this personal responsibility, his personal morality to invade the space where politics should be. And that's all I got for the beat this week. Okay, and that is the frame for the next piece. I um, have been meaning to share this article um, that Brianna Joy Gray—I always get her name wrong—shared on uh, Current Affairs. And so, without further ado, here we go. <laughs> So, Brianna Joy Gray has an article in Current Affairs called Litmus Tests. uh, And she says, Having principles is not an indulgence. It's essential if we're going to be better than the right. And in this article, you're going to find everything you need to know about Brianna Joy Gray, who was Bernie Sanders' spokesperson. You're going to find out everything you need to know about her position on. Joe Biden and where we are in the presidential election and what the left is doing and what they should do and kind of explaining what's going on. So it's an essential read if you're at all confused why there might be some people who are saying, hey, look, Joe Biden has access to my vote, but uh, he just needs to, uh, you know, seal the deal, I guess. In my case, Joe Biden has uh, affordable access to insurance for my vote. And, uh, you know, he just needs to take some personal responsibility and uh, do the things, do the right things that he needs to do as a candidate in order to get that vote. That's kind of how that goes. So you might say I am of the same mind as Brianna Joy Gray and this Uh, essay that she's done uh, pretty much explains what that is all about. And I know that confuses a lot of people. So here you go. First off, a word about the word litmus test or the term litmus test. Litmus test is a phrase that came about as we were Nominating people to the Supreme Court of the United States, and it became fashionable to say, oh, I'm not going to have a litmus test for abortion. That was the main thing. I'm not going to have a litmus test for abortion with regard to who gets nominated or who uh, gets a vote for approval for the Supreme Court. Litmus test was always used in that manner. Here we have Brianna appropriating that language and applying it to you know, whether or not you're going to vote for a uh, particular person for the presidential election in 2020. And the bottom line is this, um, although we all agree that Trump uh, must be defeated, do we think that his defeat should come with the price of abandoning the values which ostensibly are motivating our opposition to him? the blue no matter who uh, movement, if you want to call it that, blue no matter who is asking people to hand over your vote without any question as to uh, whether or not the party is going to essentially see you as a human being. And as we saw during the... Democratic National Convention, it's not like the Democratic Party is reaching out to progressives. It's not like the Democratic Party has much interest at all in uh, doing anything to bring progressives along. What they are doing, they're very interested in, is getting what they call Romney Republicans together. So they're making all these concessions and doing all this reaching out to this couple of percent of what they would call liberal Republicans or anti-Trump, never Trump or Republicans, to try and get them when you've got this whole base of the party over here who's saying, hey, look, you know, we would vote for you if only you would acknowledge our freaking existence. Brie reminds us that this is the party that brought Michael Bloomberg on board to uh, crush Bernie Sanders. That was the whole point of Bloomberg's uh, campaign. If, uh, if you hadn't already noticed, that's what he was there to do. Brie writes, last November, former New York mayor and ninth richest man in the world, Michael Bloomberg, made a late entrance into the Democratic primary as a Stop Bernie candidate. Senior aides to Bloomberg's campaign have been discussing how they're going to use some of their resources against Sanders, NBC reported. Already the campaign has spent over $500 million on ad buys. Now, his candidacy was never actually serious. I mean, people wanted his money, and, uh, you know, they, they, they got it, you know, and he got his speaking slot at the uh, Democratic National Convention, and the Democrats got A whole bunch of Bloomberg money. But no one was ever taking his candidacy seriously. I mean, come on, this is the guy who, uh, you know, who did the uh, broken windows policing and the uh, um, stop and frisk, you know, just had all these racist uh, policies as mayor. Uh, He's anti democratic. He, uh, you know, went to Albany to. Uh, lobby for a third term as mayor, so you know even term limits don't apply to him and uh it turns out he's a, he's a a pig too he's uh he was uh sexually harassing women and uh and just as much of a pig as as donald trump was and this is who the democratic party uh chose to put an end to Bernie Sanders' campaign you know who was like the first politician to have come along in, in my lifetime who actually uh, supported the things that a majority of people in the party, especially on the left, uh, are interested in and who need. I mean, We're talking about um, Medicare for All and a Green New Deal and doing something about uh, student debt. You know, these are things that are absolutely very important to people, and it's not just young people. Right now during COVID, I imagine that there's a lot of people who wish they had Medicare for All and wish that their health insurance or their health care, being able to see a doctor wasn't tied to their job because now 30 million plus people are out of work and they don't have insurance and they're getting ready to get evicted from their houses because no one can afford to pay their rent or mortgages. A form of Medicare for all has been part of the Democratic platform since I've been old enough to vote, all right? it was It was something that Bill Clinton talked about every time he got in front of a microphone. It seems you know you get a gathering of Democrats, you know more than two or three people, and he was going to talk about uh, universal health care, but he made damn sure that that didn 't happen, and that administration made damn sure that it didn 't happen and then when Obama had the chance to make it happen, he cut deals with uh, pharmaceutical companies and with healthcare companies behind closed doors to make sure that there wouldn't be a public option. And and so instead we got this like Romney care, this is basically um, Mitt Romney's uh, healthcare plan for Massachusetts from when he was governor and there were no provisions for people who could not afford insurance and instead you get this this individual mandate that penalized people who couldn't afford to purchase health insurance. And so back to Bloomberg. Was it even clear to anybody that that Bloomberg was an improvement over Trump? I mean, both men are oligarchs who openly use their wealth to wield political power. Neither has any respect for civil liberties or blacks or Latinos. And, of course, as Elizabeth Warren pointed out, they're both total freaking misogynists. And if you don't remember, Elizabeth Warren made this really memorable attack on Michael Bloomberg during one of the debates before Super Tuesday. She said, quote, I'd like to talk about who we're running against, a billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Michael Bloomberg. It was a sharp and effective volley, but the impact was dimmed somewhat by the disclaimer uttered in the same breath, quote, I'll support whoever the Democratic nominee is. Look now, you just can't do that. That's that's completely ineffective, and it makes you seem like you didn't mean it in the first place. You know, if you're not prepared to withhold your vote, then... You're writing a check with your mouth that you don't have any funds in your account to back up. Bree writes that there is no downside to uh, pushing Michael Bloomberg aside. And, uh, and actually, there was an opposite effect, that by affirming Michael Bloomberg, what you were affirming was a sexist Republican until recently who embraced racial profiling and financial cronyism. He was unqualified to be at the top of the Democratic ticket. And rather than, you know, make this attack on him and then pull it back by saying, oh, I'll just, you know, be for whoever wins this uh, primary, she would have done a lot better to affirm that Democrats need to stand for something. Just stand for something. It is not that difficult. So uh, right after this in the article, Bree has this this uh, line that I think is pretty good Um She says, to allow Bloomberg to adequately represent the party was a serious concession to principle. And the thing is, when you set the bar so low, you tend to attract things that slither and crawl. I mean, it might be the kind of line that I would edit out, like if I was editing somebody, because I'm like, oh, my God, that's just too cute. Uh, But in this case, I think it really works, and it was completely appropriate, so yay, Brie. So right now, blue, no matter who, is doing nothing but shielding Joe Biden from accountability for anything that matters to the base of the Democratic Party. We are uh, um, obliged to vote for him and obliged to support him because to not do so is beyond the pale, like it's it's just unthinkable not to support Joe Biden given that uh Donald Trump could win a second term but i got to ask you you know among all of the things that that Donald Trump is is disgusting for you know putting children in uh cages and uh you know supporting gross wealth inequality and uh And police violence and unitary executive, all of these issues were in existence during the Obama-Biden administration, and nothing was done about them. And nobody actually talked about them at the time to any great extent. Because we supposedly had this, uh, you know, a couple of angels in the White House who were doing the very best they could, and you really couldn't ask any more of them. Now, that is going to be exactly what is thrown back at the left and back at base Democrats when, if Biden is elected, and he's put in office you know, because you hear all the time now like, oh, just get him elected and then you'll put his feet to the fire, right? Well, does anybody remember how much fun it was putting Obama's feet to the fire when he refused to put on his comfortable shoes and uh, march with uh, the uh, uh, labor movement? Does anybody remember that? Does anybody remember like how fun it was to hold his feet to the fire while he was expanding the war in Afghanistan? You know, the good war, the right war. You know, how much fun was it to hold Obama's feet to the fire on immigration? You know, when all it took was a, an executive uh, action to. And putting kids in cages, which was definitely happening under Obama, he deported more people than anyone else prior. You know, He didn't do anything about it. And there was a big movement to do something about the immigration problem. But instead of focusing on Obama, what the funders wanted you to do was to focus on John Boehner. Same as the way they want you to focus on Mitch McConnell, same as the way they want you with your issues that matter to you. They want you to take that fight to their opponents, not to your opponents. We would have gotten a lot further on immigration had we gone after Obama. I mean, if it means anything at all that having your guy in office is supposed to help people or give you a better position to get things done, it should have happened under Obama and during the immigration fight, the path to citizenship leading up to the 2012 election. And nothing happened. Now, Donald Trump has a coalition of Republicans who are uh, coalesced around him because they know that Donald Trump is going to give them everything they want and everything they need. Whereas the Democrats do not have a unified force behind Joe Biden and they're looking to poach some Romney Republicans off of the Republican side of the uh, balance sheet, you know, because they know that Joe Biden will be able to deliver what Romney Republicans want, but in no way, shape or form is Joe Biden prepared to give Democrats what Progressives and left leaning Democrats need out of the uh, presidential administration. Free writes, the problem is that corporate Democrats serve the same masters but must operate under a veil of pretense. Their corporate donors are equally motivated as Republican donors to cut the social safety net, preserve for-profit health insurance, protect private real estate against profit-undermining housing laws, and slow the pace of environmental reforms. The difference between Republicans and Democrats is that Republican messaging aligns straightforwardly with their economic goals cut taxes for the rich, protect individual freedoms from government overreach, encourage self-sufficiency. They've branded austerity so that it's welcomed by their constituents. Meanwhile, Democrats attempt to disguise that they're offering versions of the same wrapped in a rainbow flag and a kente cloth, but have the clumsy task of rationalizing why they fail to deliver more than tokenism and lip service. For Republican corporate donors to be happy, Republicans must win, and they do. For Democrat or Democratic corporate donors to be happy, Democrats must lose, and they do. And Brie puts in a couple of examples of what Bernie Sanders voters said uh, were motivating them to support Sanders. Here's one. Quote, when I graduated in 2011, I owed 137000 in student loans. Today I have 175000 even as I continue to make monthly payments. I will never own a home. I will never be able to start a family or live debt free. Bernie Sanders is the only person running who will cancel all student debt. Another person writes, I got a bill for my miscarriage because my insurance only covered my child as long as the child was viable. What a wonderful country we live in, huh? Why am I for Bernie? My Bernie story tweeted by a supporter from Georgia who, like millions, was inspired by Medicare for All. So really what's going on here is quite simple. If you want the votes of Democrats, start acting like Democrats. We didn't need John Kasich and a bunch of warmed-over Republicans at the Democratic National Convention and then 90 seconds of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. What we needed was full throated support for the policy that would support working families and people who are desperately in need in this time of, of massive layoffs, massive evictions, and people needing to see a doctor because of coronavirus continues adopting ideas that galvanize voters without blue no matter who shaming shouldn't be difficult for biden after all the progressive platform is a popular one and presents little to no electoral risk 55 percent of voters including a majority of independents support medicare for all on the subject of a wealth tax 64% of Americans, including a majority of Republicans, agree that, quote, the rich should contribute an extra share of their total wealth each year to support public programs. And a majority of all Americans favor requiring public companies to let workers elect one-third of their corporate board members. You know, that's what what Germany does, so that there's um, – representation of workers on corporate boards. 83% of Democrats and left-leaning independents support free college for all, and 59% of Americans favor a Green New Deal. Although the fact that Biden beat Sanders for the nomination is often leveraged as evidence that Americans don't want a progressive platform, both polling and anecdotal evidence confirms that Biden's victory was rooted in his perceived electability, not, say, in his plan to double Pell Grants. But Biden declines to support popular progressive policies because, frankly, he and the people who run his campaign are paid not to. Biden's senior advisor, Steve uh, Ricchetti, is a former healthcare lobbyist, okay? The organizers of his super PAC include Larry Rasky, whose lobbying firm works for Raytheon, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, and the pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly. More billionaires donated to Joe Biden's campaign than any other, at least 44 billionaires, in fact, representing the real estate industry, the finance industry, and big tech. Voters may want Medicare for all, but what incentive do these men have to kneecap the for-profit health care industry? How will the needs of renters and unemployed gig workers stand up against the interest of real estate and life insurance billionaire Eli Broad, who contributed $25,000 to the Democratic Party's PAC? Here's Biden, in his own words, openly admitting the influence that corporate donors have on politicians. At a 2007 campaign event, he explained, quote, If you, Lynn, bundle $250,000 for me, all legal, and then you call me after I'm excited and say, Joe, I'd like to talk to you about something. You didn't buy me, but it's human nature. You helped me. And I'm going to say, sure, Lynn, come on in. The front of the line is always filled with those people who are filling other people's pockets. It's human nature, he added during those 2007 remarks, Biden advocated for campaign finance reform. But absent of those reforms, what incentive does he have to change his staffing so that those who advise him aren't working against the interests of those who are supposed to be electing him? What incentive does he have to pick a cabinet that isn't vertiginous she says to the revolving door and vertiginous it's like you know that you're dizzy from the revolving door spinning around um if we all vote blue no matter who what incentive does biden have to listen to anyone not holding the checkbook i think brie makes a really good point when she says Uh, refusing to push Biden left and committing to shaming voters with vote blue no matter who is not a safe strategy. It's not as safe as it appears in any way. In fact, it might ultimately backfire and make Biden less electable. Already, anxiety is growing among the lack of grassroots engagement with Biden's campaign. And I've seen this all over. Okay, I see people in my DM groups who are sharing messages that they've gotten from uh, text messages from the Biden campaign that's completely dismissive of, you know, anything that, that people want on the left. And we've seen the Democratic National Convention, which was also dismissive of everyone on the left. Um, so while there's anxiety from the polling, After the Democratic Convention, after the Republican Convention, uh, there was no bump for Biden, and now there's a huge bump for Trump. So I don't think that it's going too far out on a limb to say, hey, Joe Biden, this strategy isn't working so well for you. Maybe, just maybe, you need to do something that shows the left, shows progressives, shows base Democratic voters that you actually care about them and you're actually going to do something about them. I'm not talking about any kind of symbolic gesture here either. I am talking about putting real fighters for American workers on the cabinet. I'm talking about real policy that matters. And I'm talking about not seeing people like Larry Summers on, you know, running the treasury. And so we see happening with Biden, with the Biden-Trump election, we see a similar dynamic as was happening in the Florida governor's election that was uh, Rick Scott and Charlie Crist. So Rick Scott was running for re-election, and Charlie Crist, a former Republican governor of Florida, switches parties and gets all of the uh, donor money and the endorsements and excitement and everything from the establishment, and they put him on the ticket, and guess what? There's no enthusiasm for him. And I saw the, the polling on this. His support, Charlie Crist's support, was a mile wide and an inch deep. And what I mean by that is that there was very little enthusiasm for Charlie Crist. But a lot of people proclaimed that they were going to vote for him, but with little enthusiasm. Now, the exact same thing is happening in this dynamic with Biden and Trump, where uh, ABC News reported that that strong enthusiasm for Biden among his supporters is, is at 24%. It's the lowest on record for a Democratic presidential candidate in 20 years of um, ABC-Washington Post polls. And more than twice as many of Trump's supporters are highly enthusiastic about supporting him, 53%. That was exactly what happened in Florida with Rick Scott and Charlie Crist. Rick Scott's supporters were wildly enthusiastic for him. He had huge numbers in that area. Uh, he had fewer people who were saying that that they supported him overall, but he had that depth of commitment, and it was that depth of commitment that put him over the top. Now, right now, uh, you know, as we're you know, watching what's going on in Wisconsin and Portland. Uh, where issues having to do with Black Lives Matter are front and center. And Biden, Joe Biden is famous for taking the black vote for granted uh, at a time when the Democratic Party's share of the black vote is actually declining. The decline is slight, but our, the margins in our presidential elections are very thin as well. So um, even the Democratic Party's anointed firewall Black women, uh, those voters are starting to drift. According to a 2018 study, 12% fewer black women supported the Democratic Party in 2017 as compared to 2018. And only 45% of black women believe the Democratic Party best represents their interests. A 2018 study out of Wisconsin, very important, where nearly 88,000 more African-Americans voted in 2012 than in 2016 asked black Milwaukeeans why they stayed home. And their most common answers were unhappy with choice of candidates or issues. That was 33% of responses. Not interested was 8.8%. And vote would not have mattered was 6.6%. To maximize turnout among historically disenfranchised groups, it seems important that voters feel that something will fundamentally change. And Joe Biden has been the candidate of nothing will fundamentally change. See, now that's the problem. And this this isn't Joe Biden's gaffing. He's not gaffing. He's not stuttering. This is who he is. And this is who we're stuck with because Obama stuck his big fat nose and everything and made damn sure that uh, that the field was cleared for Joe Biden right at the critical moment. You know, it's not enough that, that we have Russians uh, uh, supposedly meddling in our elections. No, we got to have former presidents like do their own form of meddling. It's a joke. It's like, you know, Democrats have very little control over the people who are nominated to run in these big elections, statewide elections and nationwide elections like, the, like for the president. Uh, Republicans actually have a modicum of uh, security in knowing that the people who they support in the primary will make it to the general without interference from their own party. It'd be nice if the Democrats could say that too. And now here is what Biden's advisors and the establishment think of voters saying, "Hey, why don't you do something for me?" You know, because here we are. We've got you know mass evictions getting ready to happen. We have, you know people have been cut off from from stimulus and from unemployment. They're out of work. We're not able to see a doctor during a pandemic. And what we hear from the chattering class and from the establishment is, "quote, shut the hell up and grow up." That, those are the words of Obama pollster Cornell Belcher. Uh, when asked to respond to Biden's critics, who've noted the low level of enthusiasm for the Democratic nominee, he was asked, you know, like, what gives? What do you do with all of this, you know, lack of enthusiasm? And he says, oh, shut up and grow up. Well, listen, they, that might have felt good. You know, maybe maybe uh, Belcher, you know, felt good saying that on national television. And they, uh, him and Ari Melber, like yucked it up and all, but um, that's not going to change anybody's mind, and that's not going to get anyone out to vote. And ultimately, it's it's very destructive. 2016 should have been a lesson in why complacency is a dangerous bedfellow, says Bree. But I'm afraid it will be a lesson that goes unlearned. Some pundits and politicos have blamed Sanders for the enthusiasm gap, like as if Bernie Sanders is to blame for Joe Biden running a shitty campaign. And to be clear, Bernie has been out there supporting Joe Biden since way too early, if you ask me. Um, He's done everything he can, but, you know, his his, uh, supporters – supported him for a number of reasons. It wasn't because he was Mr. Charisma, and it wasn't because he was, you know, a a, a scintillating speaker. It was because he supported the policy that we need in order to be secure. That's why we supported him. And so it doesn't matter if he goes out on the campaign trail and is like, "Uh, hey, go vote for this other person. Nobody's... Nobody's going to listen to him because this other person, Joe Biden, has zero interest in doing any of the things that Bernie's voters need the political class to do in order to make sure our lives get back on track. And so Bree says the way to put together a massive coalition that will be unstoppable against Trump is not to shame Americans those of us who are struggling now more than ever, into some sort of fidelity pledge. The way forward is to put together a platform that so completely meets voters' needs that it becomes irresistible. It's that simple, you know? This isn't this isn't high school where you're being, a, you know, asked to choose between the jocks and the surfers or whatever it was at your high school. This is a politics are, are largely transactional at this level. And if voters don't see Joe Biden offering them anything, then what incentive do they have to take time off of work and go and vote for this person? Yes, we know Trump is terrible and he's scary. In another four years, it'll just ruin the country, blah, 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 blah. We know all this, but that's not going to put him over the top. It just isn't, and his campaign is is guilty of malpractice if they go into election day thinking that that's all they have to do. and so this is kind of a bookend to the other piece uh, that i that I have for the show tonight. Bree uh, wraps up by saying, I am deeply concerned that each time a corporate Democrat attempts to disavow us of our principles by smearing our values as unreasonable litmus tests each time they tell us that a policy implemented the world over is pie in the sky or that demanding health care as a human right is akin to whining for a pony or that women's rights like to not be sexually harassed or raped are conditional on who the woman is and how powerful the man is that she's crossed. When we do these things, we lose our ethical moorings. And with each election cycle, as progressive candidates are openly thwarted by big-moneyed interests who are deeply invested in the status quo, she says, I'm concerned that we have no strategy to ratchet back the rightward creep that the idea of the lesser of two evils um, enables. Pre continues, I agree that Donald Trump presents a unique and grievous threat to this country. It is also true that every four years we are told the same thing. Republicans are becoming more right-wing, more reactionary, more openly white supremacist. But it happens in part because Democrats chase them to the right, thinking electoral victory can be found in splitting the difference rather than taking a stand for good. Year after year, Democrats vote to keep Republicans from winning. At some point, the conscience coffers will be empty. Contrary to misleading headlines, Bernie Sanders has never said it is either irresponsible to decline to endorse Joe Biden or to criticize him. In fact, Sanders said that we should be, quote, doing everything we can to move Joe and his campaign in a more progressive direction and that it's irresponsible for anyone to say, well, I disagree with Joe Biden, I disagree with Joe Biden, and therefore I'm not going to be involved. And so if you agree with Bernie Sanders on this, then it's up to you to continue to be involved and to push Joe Biden to be responsible to the needs, the urgent needs of the vulnerable populations that he's relying on to put him in office. So, you know, I mean, just to wrap this up, uh, litmus tests are good, and it's up to us to push our leaders to the left um, in order to help them get elected. It's, uh, it's never enough to say that, oh, we'll get them elected and we'll hold their feet to the fire. That's never worked in the past. So we either ask for what we not want and what we need right now or we forever hold our peace. That is basically how it works. Listen, you do not accept a job with a certain salary and then come back, you know, two weeks later after you're hired and say, no, really what I really need is $15,000 more a year. There are no ways for that to work out for you. So right now, we're trying to push Joe Biden left. He's not responding to that. And so it goes, you know, and so it will go until Election Day, until something changes. But, you know, it's not up to the left to vote blue no matter who and just give away our votes. It is up to those in power to come and get our votes. Our votes are uh, (laughs) affordable and accessible to all. Just make sure you come and get them. And we've got Janine Maloff on the line for the Justice Report. She watched the Republican convention, so we didn't have to. Hey, Janine.
1: Hi. Hi. Well, actually, Brooke, I decided to change it up a bit, because after watching the convention and the barrage, the constant barrage of not just lies, but incredibly stupid and absurd lies, I just couldn't take it anymore. And what I realized was there's a bigger lesson here at stake. So initially, I was going to discuss the speeches of the RNC and the actual realities presented by... You know, multiple fact-checking services such as the Pointer Institute, um, NPR had basically transcripts provided with analysis and with annotation. Um, so you can look that up. But you know, frankly, as I said, the RNC speeches were so insane and so blatantly racist that there was—I just knew there was a larger issue at stake here. And the RNC convention also coincided with the 57th anniversary or close to it of Dr. King's 1963 I Have a Dream speech. And this really shows the two Americas because what you have is the America of white alleged Christians, more affluent, and then you have the America of racial minorities, religious minorities, what they would consider uppity women and so on and so forth. And what you have here is this, there really are two Americas. To say we're all one America is just not true. And when I looked at it a little more, what I saw was there was an undercurrent throughout this whole scenario that was far more demanding of attention than witnessing Kimberly Guilfoyle, you know, basically prove that not only could she shout, but she could probably stuff a brick in that big mouth of hers. So, and this one is really another inconvenient truth, and the fact that our American Civil War that began on April 12, 1861, never truly ended. And furthermore, uh, there was a Guardian writer in an op-ed in 2018 by the name of Rebecca Solnitz, and she wrote a piece, and the title, the headline was, The American Civil War Didn't End, and Trump is a Confederate President, and I agree. Solnit claimed that, quote, his supporters hark back to an 1860s fantasy of white male dominance, end quote, and this was in The Guardian. Solnit began her piece with the following, quote, in the 158th year of the American Civil War, also known as 2018, the Confederacy continues its recent resurgence. Its victims include black people, of course, but also immigrants, Jews, Muslims, Latinos, trans people, gay people, and women who want to exercise jurisdiction over their bodies. Rebecca Solnit further explained, its premise, the Confederacy of 2018, appears to be that that protection of others limits the right of white men. I'll say that again. Its premise, quote, appears to be that protection of others the rights of white men and those rights should be unlimited. And I would argue this is the core value of Trumpism other than just bow down before his majesty. Solnit then quoted Brazilian philosopher and noted educator Paulo Freire. And Freire not only was is known in many philosophy departments, he actually was an educator. He's the educator responsible for bringing literacy to his home country, Brazil. And Freire once explained, quote, that oppressors are afraid of losing the freedom to oppress, end quote. So I agree with Solnit's observations, and apparently many more did also. So rather than grant more time and attention to the liars at the racist GOP, again, you can look it up at NPR. They have a transcript and annotation. It's very simple. You can look it up through the Pointer Foundation. I really want to focus on the heroes in our communities of color who continue to fight for a true democracy. And the focus will begin with the August 28th Get Your Knee Off Our next March Against Racism. That's what it's called, Get Your Knee Off Our next. When you look at the racist, tone-deaf RNC speakers and then compare their message to that of the Get Your Knee Off Our next marchers, the contrast becomes a chasm. This story is the story of two Americas. The RNC version, which serves as a propaganda arm for the continuing civil war and all its ensuing racism in the real America, one filled with diversity, communities of color, religious minorities, uppity women, LGBTQ, etc., all fighting to establish what we have never had, a true democracy, all fighting to fulfill the promise that was offered in the Bill of Rights. So first I'm going to talk about the get Get Your Knee Off Our Next Marches, and then I'm going to talk about the, the alleged nice Trump supporters who aren't nice at all. This goes very deep. The, Trump is not an anomaly, okay? He's a symptom. This goes much deeper. The BBC, ABC News, The Guardian, and others reported a march against racism was set nationwide. That's centered in D.C., It was dubbed the Get Your Knee Off Our Next March, the reference plainly referring to the manner which George Floyd was murdered by police. With Reverend L. Sharpton at the Speaker's home, he pronounced on August 28, 2020, that, quote, we've come, like Dr. King came 57 years ago, to say, we're tired of broken promises. He added, there's a sense of urgency now. We need national legislation to deal with this. Sharpton went on, quote, It's time we have a conversation with America. We need to have a conversation about your racism, about your bigotry, about your hate, about how you would put your knee on our neck while we cry for our lives. We need a new conversation, end quote. Now, other speakers included U.S. Rep Sheila Jackson Lee, who said, quote, We must answer the call of institutional racism. Now, today, this attack on us is full of color, who died on the battles of warfare, who have died on the streets for civil rights. It will stop today. We will heal the nation, but we will not stop until the nation knows black lives matter and reparations are passed as the most significant civil rights legislation of the 21st century. And once again, I'm glad that Congresswoman Lee mentioned systemic racism because that's something that a lot of people don't want to pay attention to. Joyce Beatey, vice chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, was quoted saying, go vote, go vote. Tell them to get their knees off our necks. Yolanda Renee King, Dr. King's granddaughter, spoke, quote, we are going to be the generation that dismantles systemic racism once and for all, now and forever. There it is again. We are going to be the generation that ends poverty here in America, the wealthiest nation on earth. We stand and march for love, and we will fulfill my grandfather's dream." Now, Martin Luther King III was one of the march leaders. He's Dr. King's son, and he spoke about the injustices today as well. Quote, we're marching to overcome what my father called the triple evils of poverty, racism, and violence, adding challenges that disproportionately negatively impact black and Latino communities, including COVID, unemployment, attacks on voting rights, and, of course, police brutality. He added, quote, We must vigorously defend our right to vote because those rights were paid for with the blood of those lynched for seeking to exercise their constitutional rights, end quote. Martin Luther King III also told ABC News 2020 that normally there wouldn't be a demonstration on the 57th anniversary of his father's historic march in 63, quote, But because of what is going on, the climate in this nation, more civil rights demonstrations we've seen in our nation and really throughout the world that are finally acknowledging that black lives matter. You realize the reasons why police brutality and misconduct is still occurring. It is beyond time for immediate action. We all saw some things begin to move a short period of time after, tragically, George Floyd was killed. But We haven't made the kind of step that we need to. Certainly not. Um, certainly not at the national level. Family members of Black Americans murdered by police also spoke. Wanda keep Cooper Jones, who's ah- Ahmad Ahmad Arbery's mother. Many people don't remember Arbery was a 25-year-old Black man shot to death while jogging. His mother said, "Quote: I'm carrying a very broken heart." But also, a grateful heart that cho- that, that, but also a grateful heart that God chose my son Ahmed Arbery to be part of this most huge movement. I do believe that if we continue to stand and fight together, that we will get changed. Brianna Taylor's mother spoke. One of the things that the crowd said is say her name, because that's one name that keeps getting pushed to the back. The double whammy of racism and sexism, I suppose. Um, her mother said, quote, what we need is change, and we're at a point where we can get that change. But we have to stand together. We have to vote. Philanise Floyd, George Floyd's brother, spoke, quote, I wish George were here to see this right now. That's who I'm marching for. I'm marching for George, for Brianna, for Ahmad, for Jacob, for Pamela Turner, for Michael Brown, Trayvon, and anyone else, anybody else who lost their lives, end quote. George Floyd's sister, Bridget Floyd, also spoke. She urged the crowd to make a moral stand against injustice and to reflect how their actions on this day will be seen by future generations. Quote, we're here right now and have the power to make it happen. My brother cannot be a voice today. We have to be that voice. We have to be the change and we have to be his legacy, unquote. Jacob Blake's sister, Letitra Widman, gave the most poignant speech, in my opinion of all. Here's part of it. America, unapologetically, I am here to tell you in front of the world that you've got the right one. God has been preparing me. America, your reality is not real. Catering to your delusions is no longer an option. We will not pretend. We will not be your docile slaves. We will not be a footstool to oppression. Most of all, we will not dress up this genocide and call it police brutality. We will only pledge allegiance to the truth. Black America, I hold you accountable. You must and you must fight, but not with violence and chaos, but with self-love. Learn to love yourself, black people, unify, end quote. And of that particular speech, I think the most powerful line is, most of all, we will not dress up this genocide, calling it by its name and calling it police brutality. She wasn't going to let it be basically co-opted and and lessened somehow. Now, it should be noted that all participants in this march were required by the organizers to wear masks and get their temperatures checked before entering the event, which is another stark contrast to the RNC where nobody distanced or wore masks. Reverend Al Al Sharpton added, Quote, we are tired of the mistreatment and the violence that we as black Americans have been subject to, subjected to for hundreds of years. Like those who marched before us, we are standing up and telling the police, telling lawmakers, telling the people and citizens that have kept us down for years, get your knee off our necks, end quote. Now we're going to look at the other side, the propaganda arm of the RNC. Again, there are plenty of fact-checking sites, especially pointers. NPR, once again, offered full transcripts of every speech from both conventions with fact-checking. NPR even offered annotation for more depth of coverage, again, for both the DNC and the RNC. Frankly, the RNC was filled with so many outrageous lies, once again, I don't know where to begin. So I'm going to synopsize what we've all heard for the past four years. Anyone who disagrees with the racist, misogynist, religiously bigoted worldview of the Donalds is called out as a, quote, cancel culture warrior. Apparently, the primary source of this claim, namely, I'll just call her the the Ivanka, doesn't comprehend the difference between censorship, which is the adult world, world, which is the adult word for cancel culture, and free speech rights. See, the GOP of Trump, and this includes you, Ivanka, if you're listening, views free speech as a one-way street reserved solely for the rich and favored by the Trumps. Only those who properly kiss the ring of the Donald, yes, I went there, and the Ivanka, may enjoy such privilege, and privilege it is. This is the way, I'll call him the Trump, prescribes the dissemination of any freedoms as privileges granted by the infantile emperor, privileges that can be revoked as quickly as they were granted. They're not right, and they are not for us rabble. See, The Ivanka and her cancel culture homies scream foul when the rest of us have the gall to rebut any of her specious and often vapid claims on life and liberty. Sorry, Ivanka, but the right to rebuttal is part of our First Amendment free speech rights and not cancel culture as your juvenile moniker subscribes. And there were the blatant lies, the accusations that anyone not white, Christian, and if female, properly subservient, were somehow sent to the streets to hunt down innocent Trump supporters. By the way, if I'm being too obtuse, this is extreme sarcasm, uh, just in case any Trumpers are listening. The police are allegedly there to protect property and save lives from alleged marauding Black Lives Matter protesters and wild-eyed progressives, again, warning, extreme sarcasm here. Nothing to be further from the truth. Yet there were some people causing violence. Yeah, there were, but they weren't the majority. Black Lives Matter made clear that violence is not an option, and yet the racism of the GOP perpetuates into every garbage accusation. In spite of video evidence which clearly demonstrated that police have routinely hunted blacks and their allies and executed them without any legal cause, Trump supporters stand by these lies. Unfortunately, such baseless accusations are not contained to the streets. I'm gonna begin with a disclaimer how this present continual civil war still divides families. Get into some personal stuff. I have shamefully a few relatives on my mother's side of the family who beyond my belief have supported Trump and have expressed the virulent, virulently racist replacement theory which renders one cousin in particular terrified that being in the future white minority or those who now hold the power to abuse with impunity may lose that power. Now it's true. The U.S. is going to experience, experience a major demographic shift where whites will be a minority by 2045, according to a piece published by the Brookings Institute blog, excuse me, basing the estimate on the census. According to writer William H. Fry, quote, youthful minorities are the engine of future growth, end quote. People like my cousin are the alleged nice Trump supporters, but don't be fooled by the surface manners. They're terrified that their children will lose the unfair and unearned white privilege they now enjoy. These are some of the same people who lecture others about the need to assimilate to the now-majority white Christian culture without caring that this alleged assimilation, assimilation, which I've spoken about before, amounts to a soft form of cultural genocide. People like my cousin watch Fox with one of her sons offering no filters as they laugh at the triggered libs. So this cousin is like myself, an ethnic Jew, coming from a long segregated Jewish family. She feels a strange whiteness, like this. that like far too many of Trump's minions, fails to recall the vicious, discrimination our people felt once felt. Truth be told, Muslims facing discrimination and yes, violence right now in the USA are being treated exactly like Jews were some 80 to 100 years ago. Long forgotten. These are the long forgotten. Long forgotten are the decades of segregated housing covenants that excluded both, minor, both majority minority groups, most hated by white Christians of the day and, to, and time due to limited immigration. Is back when we were kids, um, this, we were still under the Immigration Act of 1924. So there weren't many immigrants of color. The two main minority groups, especially here in the Midwest, were blacks and Jews. And so they excluded blacks and Jews. Forgotten are the quotas, which severely limited the admission of racial and religious minorities, as well as any women, to universities and especially to lucrative graduate programs. Forgotten are the manufacturing and trade unions that denied admission and thus subsequent employment to blacks, Jews, and women. My father was one of those people that was denied employment because he was Jewish. Forgotten are the daily microaggressions imposed on communities of color, religious minorities, and uppity women. Microaggressions such as one I recall as a child. I was in elementary school at the time, and most of my classmates were either Lutheran or Catholic. One Monday, we were at recess, and one of my classmates discovered I was Jewish. Back then, many of us were religiously closeted for our safety. We all came down with the flu on the high holidays because our parents were fearful to religiously out themselves. We all had relatives who had been attacked and nearly killed in Midwestern communities for being Jews. When this classmate realized what she perceived as my crime, she walked up to me with her juvenile junta in tow, got in my face, pointed her finger, and screamed, murderer, Christ killer. After that playground accusation, the entire recess mob encircled me like I was an unwelcome virus they had come to destroy. I tried to explain what Judaism was in my own elementary school way, and, and that the Vatican, had issued Vatican II, which absolved the Jewish people of any blame. And an elementary school child at that time shouldn't have had to know that but it didn't matter. Unfortunately, the saddest part of the story was the lack of care coming from the adults, the teachers, who were supposed to protect all of us, walked away and turned their backs. Forgotten are the lives lost before the tragic murders of Michael Brown, George Floyd, and Breonna Taylor, names such as Emma Till. It's a shameful commentary, but my cousin, many like her, and she was a teacher, had no idea who Emma Till was until I shared the story. And people like my cousin viewed their sense of whiteness like they viewed necessary currency. Deep down, they know that their quiet support of a racist like Trump is wrong, but they value that racial currency more than they do justice or human rights. And that's what we're tap dancing around right now, racial currency. Since our economic system is based on a winner-take-all premise, not just like our elections, most whites believe the only weapon they have to protect themselves from total economic and political devastation. He has racial currency. These white Trump supporters are basically cowards. And like the cowards they are, they are ready, willing, and able to throw overboard any malcontents and racial, religious minorities overboard, Provide, especially providing they've constructed. And it, so basically, they, they would throw us overboard any malcontents, any racial, religious minorities, and any allies especially after they've constructed the narrative through the RNC that paints them as virtuous and good. This is the most dangerous type of denial. Not since the days of Hitler's Third Reich has there been such open and flagrant lies and stories of denial. Eventually, these conservative myths hit the big stage and morphed into political grandstanding, and that's what we witnessed with the RNC freak show of racist and neo-Nazis. We saw the apologists. People who know better but further the lies of the Trump administration for their own personal rewards. People like former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, born from Indian immigrants, as she claimed that there was no longer any racism in the U.S.A. and all with a straight face. Then there was Senator Tim Scott, the sole black GOP senator since heralded as a voice of reason and integrity. Now, I don't have a problem with a black Republican or a black conservative. Every person has a right to select their political preferences, but Tim Scott is not so innocent. Senator Tim Scott has not only aligned himself with the most racist administration since Andrew Jackson, but has been a longtime member of, guess what, ALEC, American Legislative Exchange Council. For those of you who don't know, Alec's a bill mill that ghostwrites the law according to corporate dictates. Laws such as Stand Your Ground. Which allowed George Zimmerman to get away with murdering Trayvon Martin were based on model bills written directly by the attorneys of ALEC. Senator Tim Scott has been a member of ALEC for many years, before, since before he was a U.S. Senator. Senator Tim Scott is also a beneficiary of campaign largesse from the notorious Coke Industries, the same group that has almost single handedly funded the Tea Party the very Tea Party that has welcomed various white supremacists and neo-Nazis with open arms. The fact that Senator Tim Scott allowed himself to be used as cover for the racist crimes of this administration merely demonstrates his cynical moral bankruptcy. But none of this matters in the political world. Trump, bigots are granted moral cover by sellout specialists like Senator Tim Scott. I would have had more respect for Tim Scott if he had joined the Lincoln Republicans calling out Trump. But Senator Scott, I guess, wanted his 15 minutes of fame. Much like Ivanka, he masterfully manipulated the dialogue. He was a propagandist, dream come true. If any progressives criticized or questioned his actions or motives, then the Trumpers could scream racism. But if we allow Senator Scott to continue lending credibility to a monster like Trump, then we're done. In truth, Senator Tim Scott's speech at the RNC was the most cynically dangerous of all. During the Holocaust, there was a word for Jews who collaborated with the Nazis, Sonderkommando, a traitor's designation. I use this designation against my own. Um, Trump aide Stephen Miller comes to mind, as well as Jared Kushner. That designation would also fit Senator Tim Scott, as Trump attacked other legislators of color, Congresswomen uh, uh, um, AOC, Ayanna Pressley, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, and now our own St. Louis Homegrown Cory Bush lends credibility to a Nazi like Trump. He's too intelligent to not realize the danger that Trump and his more rabid followers pose to fellow Blacks. But perhaps he truly believes that he rightfully earned those 30 pieces of silver, and perhaps he has. These Trump apologists are more dangerous than the violent Proud Boys white supremacist group as they normalize Trump and allow people like my own cousin to continue this exercise It's self-delusion as they desperately hold on to that vile, white racial currency. So you see, the Civil War never actually ended. It merely morphed. There was a quote attributed to someone named A.R. Moxon regarding another racist movement, again, the Nazis. Here's the quote. quote. Historians have a word for Germans who joined the Nazi party, not because they hated Jews, but because out of a hope for restored patriotism or a sense of economic anxiety, or a hope to preserve their religious values or dislike of their opponents or raw political opportunism or convenience or ignorance or greed. That word is Nazi. Nobody cares about their motives anymore. They joined what they joined. They lent their support and their moral approval. And in so doing, they bound themselves to everything that came after. Who cares anymore what particular knot they used in the binding, end quote. And I'll just end with, yeah, exactly and I'm a few minutes shy but that's my report.
0: Oh, that was <clears throat> pretty uh that that I am so sorry about the um stuff that happened to you in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> you know, we we've we've all got uh different stories of um that kind of bullying and and uh you know when it happens to you personally, <clears throat> it becomes part of your lived experience. And it makes you feel these things all the more.
1: It's an illustration, okay? If it's allowed to happen on a school playground with little children, then we know we've lost our way. Right. And it shouldn't happen, you know. And there were so many lies told at the RNC. As I went through the fact-checking, I just went, oh, God, no, there's something bigger here. And and, and those of us in the minority community, whether it's a religious minority or a racial minority, we've always known this, okay? We just have. Mm-hmm. It's, it's new to why progressives because they're seeing it out there in the open now. Um, but, you know, it's something as innocent as a microaggression, like what nationality are you? <laughs> mm-hmm, you go, I'm mm-hmm. American. What are you talking about? That's not what they're asking. And, you know, again, it's when I see intelligent people like Senator Tim Scott and Nikki Haley, actually take that apologist stance. What they're doing is far more dangerous. We cannot let Donald Trump and his minions appear normal. We can't let this be acceptable. And this is exactly what happened in Europe in the build-up, Hitler's build-up. It it just is. Uh, And, you know, once again, it's easy to call out Kimberly Guilfoyle and some of the others. But... You know, I've even seen progressives. Um, there was one young lady I met, and she was a young Muslim girl, and she was saying, well, I have a friend who, you know, backs Trump, but she's a nice Trump supporter. And I was just like, oh, honey, no. No. These people mm-hmm. know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, And we have to call them out on it. We just do. Well,
0: good good call on switching your, your topic. I think that this really wraps up what happened during the Republican convention so well. And, uh, and yeah, who could keep up with the fact checking. So thank you so much for the justice report this week. Um, I might uh, go ahead and end a minute early. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, um you know, it's been a good week and uh looking forward to to next week. I think we'll have Rick back next week. We'll have you back mm-hmm. and uh Cardix joining me earlier this week to record a segment. So we got a lot of stuff coming at you next week. Right. And,
1: and a right. lot of the stuff about Senator Scott, I found the documentation. He's been oh, wow. Under yeah, that's what I'm saying. It may have sounded kind of casual, but I have the documentation. He's been a member of Alex since before he was a U.S. Senator. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: Okay, well let's uh, let's continue this discussion next week, and uh, okay. for everyone tuning in, thank you so much, and we will see you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.